The text of the sermon is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, be reading verses 11 through chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, Just a a quick synopsis of the, the purpose of this letter that Paul wrote to this church in Corinth, this Gentile church. Uh, he's been accused by false teachers who have infiltrated themselves into the church. They're, they're wolves who have placed themselves in the church for their own gain. And they've accused Paul of negligence, of insincerity, of false teaching himself, of lackluster preaching in so many words. And he's writing to call this church that he loves to himself and to repentance. He's defending his ministry in a way. But the most important thing he's doing is calling the church to be right with God. He has great confidence in the ministry that he's been called to. He says this gospel is spiritual. It's from God himself. It cannot fail. So he's confident that God's work cannot be stopped. But he's patiently instructing and pursuing these people because he loves them. So I'll be reading in verses, uh, chapter 6, verses 11 through chapter 7, verse 1. If you're able, would you please stand one last time for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge that this word is for us, and yet for us to truly receive it, for us to truly understand it, for us to truly embrace it as sons and daughters of the King, we need your spirit. Please open our eyes and soften our hearts to receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of the sermon is, You Are God's Temple. And through these scriptures, we'll see that there really all is one connecting piece to all that Paul has said here, and that's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit has enabled Paul to be transparent in his love for these people, to speak openly to them in his teaching, and in his life. We'll talk about that first. And then secondly, we'll see that the Holy Spirit has given him the authority to tell them that they should not be partnering with unbelievers in their lives, especially the false teachers among them. 
And then the reason for all of it is that you are God's temple. And we'll talk about that as well. What had happened though? The, the false teachers and the lack of understanding of what was going on had brought some worldliness into the church. And Paul is addressing this uh, by going to the root cause, which is people forgetting that they're children of God. Dr. David Wells wrote about worldliness in really five volumes on culture. In one of his books, he said, Worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective. That's worldliness. Which displaces God and his truth from the world and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. And thus it gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. This is true in every age, not just in our age. We, we, we clearly see it in our age. But it's been true in every age. Why is that? Because Satan desires us to be worldly. He desires the church to follow the, the pattern of this world and the spirit of this world, which is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul shows these, these wonderful people in the Gentile Corinthian church that they need to open their hearts to him because he has a message for them. Indeed, he's been saying all along that he has a message for them and he wants them to hear him. He wants them to receive this message. He's not a bad teacher. He's a good teacher. And he's trying to convince them that they should listen to him because of his life and his life experience and his love for them. There was a time when I was a, a pilot in the Air Force, and the way pilots are trained is they're instructed. They're instructed by instructor pilots. And the instructor pilots are the best pilots in the squadron. In a squadron of 35 pilots, you might have four or five instructor pilots. And their duty is to train everyone. And of course, these are generally very competent, accomplished, and often proud men. And what every instructor pilot or IP learns is that to really be fruitful in your mission, to be a good IP, you can't just be competent, although you should be competent. You can't just know your stuff and tell the truth, although you should know your stuff and tell the truth. You also have to show the student that you care about their progression. And that was really a problem for for every fighter pilot community around the world. These instructor pilots were very competent. They were proficient. They were courageous and truthful in their debriefing. But they really didn't seem to care. They almost enjoyed grinding the student into the dirt. What we found is that the very best instructors weren't always the best pilots. The very best instructors were the, the instructors who could tear the student down, tear apart all of his, his errors in the air, and show them the errors through tape review and uh, various different systems that we have to show what actually happened in the air, to show exactly what the student did wrong, 
to show him that he really has much to learn, and then after doing so, to build that man back up or that woman back up so that he knows, although he's far from proficient in being able to go to combat, he knows that he can do better. And he's inspired to go and do better. This is what a good instructor pilot does. The best instructor pilots are like that. They're proficient. They're, they're humble in their truthful, courageous debriefing of error. And they also show that they actually care for the students. Well, Paul is saying much the same thing in verse 11. He's saying, I've spoke freely to you. Our hearts are wide open to you. He's given them much instruction already. But he's reassuring the congregation that he loves them. He cares for them. Yes, it's, it's the preaching of the word of God. So the message is always relevant. It's relevant for every culture. It's objectively true, so it's always helpful. In other words, the word of God is nothing but truth. So it's always helpful, but added to this, Paul says, I love you. My heart is open to you. He's speaking the truth in love. His heart is wide open. And certainly he's contrasting his behavior with the false teachers. Their hearts were not wide open. Their hearts were closed. They came with selfish deceit. They hid their true motives. Paul, on the other hand, is selfless. He's a slave of Christ. Paul spoke about this earlier in the letter in chapter 4. He said of himself, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We have refused to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by an open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. The false teachers did the opposite. Their heart was closed, right? They used disgraceful and underhanded ways. They practiced cunning and they tampered with God's word for their own gain. But Paul says, my heart is wide open. He, he follows along the same theme in, in verse 2 of chapter 7, which we did not read. But he says, make room in your hearts for us. I've wronged no one. I've corrupted no one. I've taken advantage of no one. I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. And then he shows that he loves them. I've spoken with boldness to you. I take great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. I'm overflowing with joy. So Paul encourages them to live with the same level of openness that he's shown them as they relate to him. And he says to do otherwise is to really stunch your own spiritual growth. Nobody wants to, to stunt their own growth. I remember as a child, I was a little bit shorter than some of the kids in my class. And I asked my mom, can I have a sip of your coffee? And she said, no, that will stunt your growth, son. And I thought, oh, I don't ever want to do that then. If it has anything to do with being tall, I've had lots of coffee. But I didn't want to stunt my growth. Paul says in verse 12 that, when you do that, when you hold off yourself from other people in the church of God, you're restricting your own affections. You're stunting your growth. He says in verse 12, you are not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. This is in your own affections. The, the Greek is you've, you've shut up in your bowels, um, in your inner parts, if you will, and it's not so strange. We use kind of a same 
terminology today. Have you ever said to someone, I just knew it was wrong in my gut? Or in my gut, I knew this was the right thing to do. That's kind of what Paul is saying. You are shutting us up in your gut. You've restricted us in your own affections. And he says, contrast to that, I've opened my heart to you. I've transparently loved you. I'm hiding nothing as a father speaking to a child whom he loves. So he says, I speak to you as children. Open up your hearts to me in the same way that I've opened up my heart to you. So certainly there is application for us in the church. The way of love in a church family, all of us who have our hearts indwelt by the Holy Spirit, is to open our hearts to each other. This is only possible with the humility and the integrity of the Spirit of Christ to act as Christ did towards each other with the love of Christ. So imagine in your closest relationships with your husband or wife or children or parents, if you weren't open with them, if you always had hidden motives and hidden parts of your your life that were not open to the very closest people in your life, what distrust and separation that would engender. And yet we are sons and daughters. We are family because of the Holy Spirit. And so should we open our affections to each other. We should open our hearts to each other. We should speak to each other without deceit, without any hidden agenda, without any hidden motion. As Paul said, we die together and live together. We're on this journey together, this wilderness life together. We are the people God has given to each other to walk together. And it should be done with open hearts. Hearts wide open. Well, the world rejects this completely. What does the world do? Look at social media. Everything is all about putting forth your best foot, showing yourself in the best possible light, making sure that nobody knows that you actually have insecurities and doubts. You have sickness. You have ailments. You have financial struggles. You have relationship issues. No, nobody can know those things. This is what the world does. They try to look good and hide the bad, promote the good at all costs. Make sure that nobody ever sees that you're a real human being. Paul says this is not how he's lived with the church. His heart has been wide open. The man of God, the woman of God lives differently. With our own people, our hearts are wide open. With the world, our hearts are open in love. Here at Meadow Creek, in this family of God, we must strive to widen our hearts to each other, to trust each other. Could it get messy? Yes, it could, because we're all fallen people, redeemed by God and still struggling with sin. However, it's worth the risk. Open your hearts, as Paul did. Paul opened his heart to this church, and he was destroyed. And yet he continued to pursue them in love, because love always pursues pursue each other in love open your hearts to each other so after having told this church what a real church family looks like a church that's open in their love for each other their hearts are open to each other they communicate well with each other in truth they speak the truth courageously he begins to do that 
in the very next scripture, the very next verse. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now this is probably being applied because of the false teachers in the church. He's saying, don't yoke yourselves with these false teachers. They're unbelievers. They're not real Christians. But the principle is much broader. He's pulling this this principle from the civil law of Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 22. You shall not put plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now some people may remember when they used mules to plow here in East Tennessee. I spoke to some people, to a person who said he remembers using a mule to pull. And I asked him, well, what would happen if you you hooked an ox to a mule? And he said, that would not work. And I said, well, why wouldn't it work? I've never plowed with an animal before. What What would not work about it? He said, well, they'll pull at a different pace. Their steps would be different as they, as they walked across the field. One would be higher and one would be lower. They have different strength, so they're pulling with different strength. They have a different objective. It's so important, this man told me, that they would even make sure that the mules were the same size if you're going to plow with two mules, you make sure that you don't have a giant of a mule with a little pygmy mule. That's not going to work either. So you try to match up the animals. So why would God tell the Israelites they shouldn't plow with an ox and a donkey together? Is it because He wanted His people just to be prosperous and to do things the most efficient way possible? Well, maybe that's part of it. But it seems more a a concern for the animals. It seems more that this ox and this donkey together could harm the other. Certainly, it it doesn't make sense to do it. But certainly, it's for the protection of the animals as well as the Israelite community. So Paul is saying like that, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Why? It's for your good that God gives that restriction through Paul. He's applying this principle, partnering with unbelievers as a bad and unhealthy thing that will ultimately harm you. And if you think you can manage a a relationship with an unbeliever, if you think you can work through it, you're wrong. As he will go on to say later, to be unequally yoked ultimately is a matter of authority. What do I mean by that? Those who have been redeemed from sin and death, those who have been saved by the almighty hand of God, purchased with a great price, who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, should have a desire to, to become more and more like Jesus. And yet Paul saw that people were still pursuing the world. They were still pursuing the kingdom of the world and the authority of Satan that's yoked with that. So if you yoke yourself with an unbeliever in all of their idolatry, you're actually yoking yourself to Satan. So we'll talk about what that means in a moment. But what it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we, we all move to convents and monasteries and live separately. We don't pack up and move to Bolivia and just have our own little insular church community. No, we're still in the world. 
In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, I've told you not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters in the world, for then that would mean you would need to get out of the world. Paul's saying, I'm not saying get out of the world. He's talking about people in the church who are like that. Those are the ones you don't associate with. So when we say that we shouldn't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, we're not saying we remove ourselves from the world. No, we're called to be light to the world. Partnering, being unequally yoked with, means giving yourself to that person's influence or that organization's influence. This pagan person, this this Satan-worshipping person. And I don't use those words lightly because whether they know it or not, anyone who's not serving Christ is serving Satan. And this is Paul's point exactly. So the application has typically been with marriage, right? Don't be unequally unequally yoked probably means don't marry someone who's not a believer. Well, yes, it does mean that. But that's a subset of the greater principle. Any close relationships you have in personal life or in business or in any other sphere where you are you're giving yourself to the influence of another should be very much looked at as a negative in life and very much questioned. Maybe I'm stating it too lightly. Paul does not. He says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Why is this so important? Because worldliness has at its center a fallen human perspective that makes everything right seem wrong and everything wrong seem right. And if you partner yourself with an unbeliever, it's like partnering Christ with Satan. It doesn't work. It's like partnering light with darkness. It's impossible. Paul is addressing this spiritual principle by using absurdities. This is absurd that anyone would think they can do this. In the same way, believers have no portion with unbelievers in essential principles. There's no partnership there. But it's more than that. It's a sin to align yourself with unbelievers, to partner with the devil. And any binding or committed partnerships are in view. Who are your closest friends? Are they believers? They should be. They should be believers. They should be people in this congregation. Have you put out your estate? Have you partnered with someone in some business arrangement who's an unbeliever? Have you placed him under your power? Or placed yourself under his power? Should we think about the schools where we send our children? Is the principal a believer? Are all the teachers that will be in my children's lives believers? But they're really nice people. I've known these people for years. I grew up with these people. Those things may be true. But the point is, are they believers? Are you partnering with Satan? Are they Christ followers or not? 
The principle remains. There's no agreement at a foundational level. You serve the living God. Paul makes the point again. And notice how many times he shows various absurd ways to say the same thing. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? This is verse 16. For a Jew reading this, it would be preposterous and they would have all kinds of emotions flooding over them. The temple of God was the most holy place of worship to a Hebrew. To bring an idol into the most holy place would be the worst thing they could imagine. And of course, this is a reason of great problem for the Roman occupation of Palestine. The Romans brought in standards and uh, idols of worship into Jerusalem, into the holy city, if you will. And the Hebrews were disgusted by it. Right next to the temple was the place where the Romans lived and worshipped their own gods. In the Greek era before that, the same thing applied. Famously, Antioch, Antiochus Epiphanes completely desecrated the temple area. He sacrificed a pig on the altar of God. He took swine broth and sprinkled it all over the holy scriptures found throughout the temple courts. He made the priests to eat pork or die and outlaw Jewish temple worship and introduced in, in the temple the worship of Zeus. Can you imagine how outrageous that would be even today if something like this were to happen. This is Paul's point exactly. To find common ground with the culture is impossible. We don't need to make the gospel of Jesus more relevant for culture. It's eternally relevant. If you want to be a light, you don't become like the culture. You shine like Christ. And to try to partner with the world in some way is to end in disaster. And so he quotes Isaiah 52, which we read in the Old Covenant reading. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Why be separate? Well, he says in verse 16, we are the temple of the living God. That's why. We are the temple of the living God. That's why you should separate yourself from all that is pagan, from all that is of this world as partnering with you in some way in your life. It, it should not happen. I remember when Mary Kay's dad, he was a businessman. He traveled all over the world. And he would often come back from the Far East with little trinkets and little idols that were artistic pieces or something. That was before he was a Christian. When he became a Christian, he took all that stuff out in the backyard and smashed it with sledgehammers and burned it and buried it. There's nothing that is in common with, with idolatry and a Christian. Or if you've seen the movie Fireproof, you remember the man is struggling with pornography and he's got this computer in his office and he, he knows that that is the place, that is the seat of his enemy. And he can't fight it well. And there's one scene where he takes it out and he takes a baseball bat and he just pounds this, this computer into smithereens. What's he doing? He's recognizing that there is no comportment between the temple of God and the world. They do not go together. You are the temple of the living God. Individually and corporately, the Holy Spirit lives in you. So certainly you see the connection. Wherever you go, He goes. 
What you see, he sees. He knows what you're thinking. He's well acquainted with all of your worship. And he knows what you worship. You've been adopted. This is the spirit of adoption. The Holy Spirit living in you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. But more than that, you have great and precious promises. He continues in verse 16. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people This is among the most precious promises of the Bible. Indeed, it is the covenant promise that God would dwell with his people. And think about it. The almighty creator of the universe lives in you. And Paul takes this this old covenant promise, which is really the new covenant promise, made to Israelites, made to Abraham, And he tells this Gentile church, this is your promise. God will dwell with you. He will walk among you. This God who dwells in unapproachable light, who have myriads and myriads of angels bowing down before him and worshiping, cherubim surrounding his throne, constantly crying out, holy, holy, holy. He's so apart from us and so different from us. He's the one who was and is and is to come. He's the powerful and most wise and glorious eternal king. And he's come to dwell in you. And Paul says, separate yourself from the world. Don't partner with the world. God has made you his temple. And in the very end, in Revelation 21, what do we see? We see the same promise fulfilled. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the greatest hope we have as Christians, that we will be with God, and yet already he is dwelling inside us by his Spirit. God's presence is with us, and we have the promises that come with that relationship. And because of that, he says, go out from their midst. Be separate from them. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So let's conclude with verse 1 of chapter 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So based on all that Paul has argued for here, with such clear instruction and such great blessings and privileges as God's people, why do so many in the church still pursue other gods? Why do so many in in churches around the world pursue other gods? Why do we not take this word seriously and separate ourselves from the world and partnership from the world in the most intense and intimate relationships in our lives. Again, David Wells, I think, hits the nail on the head. He says the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique. It's not insufficient organization. It's not antiquated music. Those who would squander the church's resources bandaging these scratches will do nothing to staunch the flow of blood spilling from its true wound. The fundamental problem with the evangelical world today is that God rests 
to and consequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. His Christ is too common. Let us not people be people whose Christ is too common. Let us not be people who take the word of God and just say, well, I can manage this. It's okay. I don't need to change anything. My life is good. I'm saved by grace. Everything else doesn't matter. God calls us to live holy lives. Paul says at the end of this argument, live holy lives. So how do we apply this? In relationships, yes, we embrace people with love. And we embrace people in our church with transparent love, with open hearts. We're sons and daughters of the King. Did you notice even in the call to be separate from them, from the Old Testament, in verse 18 he says, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We shouldn't be unequally yoked to anyone in this world, but we should be very much yoked to each other because of Christ. And regarding holiness and worldliness, we need God's help to stop worshiping the world. Ask yourself, what does this world worship? You can look at your culture and fill in the blank. Do you worship that? Inasmuch as you do, you are yoking yourself unequally with the world and its system. Paul says, perfect holiness by pursuing Christ. Jesus Christ came to this earth and lived a perfect life so that we might be part of his family. This is why. This is why the Son of God came and died, so that we can be sons and daughters of the Most High. And the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. If you have faith in Christ, you are the temple of God. Let us go to the Lord in prayer before we partake of the Lord's Supper. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your, your life. Thank you so much for your incarnate life among us. We thank you that you have brought us to yourself. You have brought us to a place where we should worship you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Please help us, Lord. Our hearts desire to please you. And we're conflicted inside because we're pulled in so many different directions. And maybe by years and years of, of indulgence in sin and partnership with the world, we, we find ourselves struggling now. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us. Help us to embrace Jesus Christ in faith and to, to run to Christ in repentance. In Jesus' name.